listening to Perfume on the Radio. On Lookout. In 2017, Tammy Bernstock produced a series of screenings of The Scent of Mystery. The movie was written in 1960, and it was an adventure caper that took people on a chase through Spain. It starred Elizabeth Taylor in an uncredited role, and this was uncredited in my opinion because in a lot of ways the movie was a total stinker. It was good-natured, and it was really cheesy. But it also was one of the first films, if not the first film, written specifically with scent in mind, and it made use of a contraption developed by Hanselaub called Smellovision. But that is a story for another day. One of the scenes of the movie had Peter Lorre drinking a cup of coffee. In fact, unbeknownst to the audience, the drink had a secret ingredient, alcohol. In our screenings, Tammy asked me to create two scents for that scene. One was a straightforward coffee smell. The other was a boozy, rich, alcoholic smell. In the screening, we would propagate the coffee to one half of the audience and the alcohol to the other. It was going to be a joke. The problem is that the joke just didn't work. And why is that, you ask? Well, because smell is perceptually one of our weakest senses. We're not educated to think about scent. Visual and auditory cues take the lead. Now this can be a lot of fun. One can use sound or color to tweak perception. But when you're trying to get people to think of alcohol when they see a coffee cup on screen, you're up for a bit of a challenge. Smell, in other words, is kind of fuzzy. In this episode, we explore how scent can be used to engage with those fuzzy areas, the outer fringes of everyday perception. Perfume on the Radio airs semi-monthly on LA's own Lookout FM and is a program of the Institute for Art and Olfaction. I'm Saskia Wilson-Brown, and I'll be leading you through this 13th episode of Perfume on the Radio, an episode that we're calling The Doors of Perception. Get cozy, and let's get started. Jeanette Andrews is our first guest, and I invited her on because Jeanette is a magician. And what is magic if not the manipulation of perception? I could spend quite a bit of time introducing Jeanette. She's an impressive person. But instead, I'll let her speak for herself. Here's Jeanette. I'm a magician, an artist, independent researcher and speaker, and I have been technically trained magician for the last... Oh my gosh, 27 years. My career from my early 20s onward has really been looking at, you know, the way in which the phenomena around us is deeply complex and kind of malleable and amazing from uh you know from this perceptual way and in the way in which magic as a performance medium really taps into a lot of these kind of anomalies within this very robust lived perceptual experience. So tell me about that a little bit, because that was my next question, which is how does perception play into your practice? Truthfully, it's it's kind of all of it. So much of magic, or really, in my opinion, basically all of magic is about perception insofar as that from a baseline technical perspective, you know, there's one thing happening technically behind the scenes, and then there's a very different result that a viewer sees um, or experiences in some way. So that's just this very baseline perceptual discrepancy, which I think in and of itself is a very rare and interesting thing, you know, insofar as my experience of a performance and a viewer's experience of a performance are two deeply different things. The really well-designed, kind of intricately done pieces of magic, um, sometimes even very simple things as well, explores, you know, I, I think some of the more complex facets of perception, such as the ways in which attention is directed and crafted and how that kind of flows through time in the visual field, and, and then how that binds together with other forms of sensory input, other modes of psychology, uh, what we now are coming to understand about sort of the neuroscience of magic and how the brain processes these things. 
the social uh, relationships with, you know, how people mm. interact when you're watching a magic performance is, is key because very different things happen if you were to watch a magic performance isolated in a room versus mm. with a friend versus with a group of strangers. So all of these different kind of perceptual elements are going into something that I think is really interesting. And then on top of that, sort of as this this third layer is the idea that, you know, I'm very interested in using magic as a mechanism to point directly to the perceptual process itself. Because it's something that's so robust and dynamic, magic a lot of times explicitly does raise these questions of, wait a minute, how do I know what I'm seeing? What is my perception of a certain sense of time? What is Mm -hmm. my perception of something that I just touched or, or held in a tactile way? So I think I think magic really does call into question a lot of these ideas that I think can act as a great fodder for for thought. That's incredible. Um, I came to learn about you because you you were, to my knowledge, the first magician that I've ever come across who worked specifically with scent. Tell us what made you decide to fold scent into your practice. So the story is kind of. Um, Kind of a goofy one, I suppose, but I had been doing a residency. It was my first artist residency, and to my knowledge, is is was the first artist residency that that any magician had done. This was back in twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen, I believe. It was in Seaside, Florida, and my original project proposal to them was uh, to do magic related to sound, and that was proving even more difficult than I thought. Um, and during the course of my residency, because I had to have something kind of to show for the end of it, I thought, well, I'll just expand this into all of the five senses and just start researching all of them. And then I was going through a lot of historic magic texts in some archives and, and just going through each of the five senses and trying to find things that were really directly linked. And when I was researching scent, I found almost nothing. I mean, I could count on one hand the number of examples. So I was very intrigued by what in my mind was kind of this gaping hole in the historic canon. And I was going, well, this is this is really unusual. Nobody's doing this. So it's interesting to me to try to explore. And then once I started diving into it, I realized how parallel scent and magic really were. I view scent, and I think a lot of people do too, as something that is really deeply mysterious. It's inherently ephemeral. It's typically something, um, depending on what form it takes, but in its transmission, it's invisible. You know, and so I'm going, well, here's this thing that's hazy and and fuzzy um, perceptually, and it's mysterious, and it's invisible, and it's got all of these sort of aesthetic qualities that are really similar to a lot of the qualities of magic. And so it also felt like a very natural fit. So that's, that's also why I got very interested in it. And I very quickly discovered in trying to work on it that, yes, the reason that it was not being done was that the technical challenges are immense in a way that is very different with magic than I think Mm. even some of the other technical challenges are with working with scent in other industries or capacities because so much of magic relies upon an expectation violation. What do you mean by expectation violation? So like the idea that if somebody sees you know, a deck of playing cards that's blue and all the backs are blue and you've seen it repeatedly um, and you've seen the deck of cards be shuffled and then suddenly one of those cards is now red. Oh, right, okay. You're preconditioned to having an expectation that all of these cards are blue and now there's that's sort of been violated. So then with scent, that gets into a really strange area because at least certainly within the United States, and you know this far better than I do, Education and language surrounding how we speak about scent is so, I mean, not even tertiary. It's like off, you know, people, people don't, you know, don't know anything about this. So, you know, people can't readily identify smells by name. They can't really speak about them um, unless it's things that are just like really, really obvious and very familiar and kind of everyday. 
so it gets a lot harder from a psychology standpoint to say, you know, here's one thing and now it's something else, or now something has, you had a familiarity with something and now, you know, it's, it's very hard to work in this, in this space. Um, because not only do you need sort of a built in context for people to have certain expectations, but then you also need typically within magic, you need some sort of confirmation Mm -hmm. and within visual magic, typically, you know, if you think about that example of a playing card changing colors, you could be with a group of people in a room and have everybody watch a playing card change colors with the exception of colorblindness people by and large will have a very similar biological perception of that event and be able to articulate that using the same language in the same way. Right. It's easy to be like, that's red, that's blue. Exactly. And with scent, as I started to work on it and I was just spitballing all kinds of crazy ideas, like what if I did this and what if I did that? I was like, this isn't even going to work because if you give people different scents, they identify them differently and people have different levels of their ability to smell. And even just basic things when I started doing performances, you know, you get fluid and allergy season and people can't smell well. So it's a very different area when you're relying on people having this preconditioned set of expectations that they can identify and be sort of ready to have those expectations shifted or changed and then also needing the confirmation on the other side that then people also can't readily do often. So the psychology of it is very difficult to deal with. And then on top of that, then you have just the basic technical challenges of working with scent that everybody deals with. So it's, 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 that's why um, it, it hasn't been done readily. Okay. <laughs> so, and yet you took it on. So what was the potential of working with scent that attracted you despite all these challenges? I mean, I think it was just the idea that despite all of this, it's something that is so communicative and it's something that's so deeply embedded within our being of being able to really kind of share an experience with people in a very different way. It's so visceral. And I think that really attracted me, you know, to it as I'm kind of always trying to challenge the way that people experience what magic performances are and can be. Being able to play with this different sensory input that if nothing else just biologically functions really differently, I just thought was really interesting. I saw people reacting to it in a way that truthfully I didn't anticipate. You know, in early performances, I would have people smell things in a lot of different, you know, roller balls. And even with that, I was so intrigued just watching off to the side of the conversations that, you know, participants would have and that this would elicit in telling their own stories that suddenly this added a whole layer to people's experience that hadn't been there before that I just, that really excited me. Yeah. I imagine if, when it works, you know, it gets people on a deeper level because scent, as you said, is so emotional for folks. Yeah. So I I could see how a successful performance could really leave people touched, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is a major powerful tool for a communicator such as yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's why I'm still, you know, years later, I'm still so intrigued by it and so excited by it. That was the literally magical Jeanette Andrews calling in from Chicago on her way to New York. You can learn more about her work at JeanetteAndrews.com. Our next guest is a recurring guest on our show. Dr. James Dotson is a psychiatrist with a fascination for the strange borderlands of fragrance, and his interests include ethnobotany, alchemy, classical astrology, and archaic and traditional medicine. He joined us to talk about how perception was examined, tweaked, and explored through the lens of scent in Los Angeles in the 1960s. Here is James. One of my primary theses in working with perfume is that fragrance can lead you into a trance state. 
There is a lot of literature about trance states being induced by what they call a sensory immersion or sensory overload. There was literature uh, mostly in the 19th century about hypnosis where they actually described all kinds of things involving incense and said that, yes, indeed, we really feel that fragrance, when you became deeply involved in it, can lead people into having altered states. And these trance states or something that happened to people all the time, people immerse themselves in things. And there are ways of using your senses, including your sense of smell to take yourself to another place. This is really vital because there are multiple ways of knowing. So you can use your rational mind to understand things, but there's irrational knowing or intuitive knowing, which is a different part of your brain I find that people who are creative, even in you know the hard sciences, frequently use these things to inspire themselves with new ideas. I, I was wondering, so so with the trans states, is this something that you you find historically has been done mostly uh, using psychedelics or hallucinogens? Yes, or? of course. There's a huge history of using ingested substances or things that you breathe in, such as you know hashish or opiates or some other herbs, but there's also a huge history of using things that have absolutely no pharmacological properties to have altered states. And so there are a lot of things like sandalwood and so on that just are abstracted and it takes them into a trance state. So I think it's an interesting intersection of several things. There is the whole idea of environmental fragrancing versus personal fragrancing. So nowadays, that's kind of a catchphrase. And most people discuss uh, candles or diffusers or sprays. And incense is, of course, the original way of using fragrance. But because of smoke phobia, I think incense culture has kind of waned. Um, It was still a big deal in the 70s. My sort of history of L.A. is intersecting with the history of outsider spiritual traditions. So I have, you know, lots of fascinating documentation and there are lots of really great stories. Probably one of the early stories that I'm interested in is that the Theosophical Society came from the UK and from New York and came to California because they felt it was this place that was very spiritual, perhaps was part of a lost continent. And before the film colony came, they were in Los Angeles. They had this uh, particular place called Cretona um, in Hollywood. And they did have access to incense. I have old catalogs and stuff which showed people would mail order incense from India. And this was for spiritual development and meditation and so on. So that was definitely there a long time ago. But the first like other hard documentation is from this fascinating place called the Brotherhood of Light. It was later called the Church of Light. So there was this occult group that existed in Europe and the United States called the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. And it almost disappeared in the early 20th century, but it was taken up by this very young guy who went under the pen name of CZ Zane. And he came to Los Angeles around 1918, and he founded his particular occult practice there. He was in a building in downtown Los Angeles, which has since been torn down. He did mostly astrology lessons, but they also had a focus on using magic mirrors, which were often black mirrors, sometimes crystal balls, because they felt it was important for people to develop their visionary capacities to explore other worlds. And in this particular newsletter from like the early 1920s says, oh, we have special incense for sale because incense can cause psychic enfoldment. And if you burn incense, you can go into these trance states and be able to perceive these other spiritual dimensions. What's interesting is that there was an incense culture and incense was kind of chic in the 20s and 30s. There was a very fancy brand from New York called Vantines, and it was sold in these high-end department stores like Los Angeles had Robinson's and some other department stores. So there was this use of it just for pleasure that people had. And then there was sort of the underground use of incense for you know spiritual practices too. At the same time, people could get uh, what we would call church incense from church supply places because, of course, there were Catholic churches and 
you know, oftentimes family members of someone who is a priest would open a religious supply shop so you could go and get frankincense and things like that there. It's like but, today with those, but with the botanicas, you know, it reminds me of sort of the botanicas. Are those related but, to what you? So botanicas were an East Coast thing, and these herb shops and botanicas didn't really come to LA till much later. So mostly people would go to like an Irish family's O'Connell's religious supply and go buy frankincense, and they wouldn't really ask questions about why you were buying it. At the same time, Los Angeles also had some of the first yoga teachers ever, like the 1920s and 30s. And I know from a friend of mine that the Vedanta Institute, which has been in Hollywood since, I think, 1930, my friend, who was like this early spiritual hippie dude in the 60s, said he would always go to the Vedanta Institute to buy incense. They had a couple types of incense that were made in India for them that they would use for meditation. And he still mail orders the exact same incense from them that he used to get in the early 60s. Wow, I can't believe they're still supplying it. How amazing. There were various places you could get stuff, but the huge surge availability and interest in incense came, of course, during the psychedelic revolutions. Not only was there this huge thing about people using psychedelics, but there was psychedelic music, there's psychedelic fashion. And as we know, there were head shops. So head shops became one of the first places where you could get incense. And there were people who talked about perfume and incense as part of magical practice, there's just one very famous person, Louise Webner, who was declared the official witch of Los Angeles. And she did this ritual at the Hollywood Bowl. And she would use perfumes and incense in order to enchant a person to have them develop their psychic powers. And a little bit later, there was a shop that was called the Sorcerer's Shop. And the person who owned it was Babetta. So she had this super spooky shop. She was also like, quote unquote, the sexy witch. And she had a whole photo spread and penthouse at one point. The incense was really good. And I used to have one called Eye of Horus. And she also had her own version of Kifi. She also sold really rare things that I couldn't get anywhere else. I used to go there to get mastic. She was like an artisan incense maker, which she sold for reasons she said that it would allow you to contact spirits or, you know, have dreams and things like that. And she had this fantastic shop until I believe her neighborhood became upscale and they um, vibed her out because they thought she was kind of vulgar and that she ended up having to close the shop. The other place that was incredible that I wish that I had gone to was this place in the early 70s in Hollywood called the Brotherhood of the Ram or the Order of the Ram. They, this is great, they owned a go-go club in Silver Lake called Satan the Go-Go, and they had their own cult storefront too, which later sold things like candles and incense And so the head guy was someone who looked totally like a Charles Manson dude with like a a robe and a long beard, a long hair. His name was Don Blythe. And he had a background in like sideshows and carnies. So he opened this place as a quote unquote kind of curiosity museum. And he had his own kind of occult stuff that he had gotten mostly from books. But his deal was he had a lot of extremely beautiful young women who were go-go dancers at one point and they worked in the shop. And then at some point, they women decided that they were going to be selling stuff. And they're the ones who started selling candles and eventually made incense and perfumes, which they sold. They were like early indie perfumers, right, who sold these things that were used for spiritual purposes. Later, people would also go to some bookstores. The Bodhi Tree Bookstore is very famous in the history of Los Angeles, very well known as a place to go and buy all kinds of stuff. But they had a whole incense section for people who wanted to use it for like meditation or spiritual practices. And they were one of the few people who started carrying high-end Japanese incense at some point. So there were lots of people doing incense things for various spiritual practices, uh, meditation, rituals, calling up spirits. And you could go and buy these things, which was, you know, incredibly fun. Pan's Apotheca, I know, still exists. And um, there's another place in LA, the Green Man, 
So there are places, and then I think people repurpose, you know, other types of uh, commercially available perfumes for sort of their own ritual practices and so on. The botanicas I know are a little bit unrelated, but I've noticed in botanicas you get a lot of sort of, well, you get a lot of perfumes that when you smell them, you're like, oh, this is, you know, repackaging of something that exists on the market for a different purpose. So at what state, I mean, how, how does that work? How, how do you sanctify a perfume for ritual or religious use? Well, um, you know, for thousands of years, um, people have used incense in religious rituals and continue to do so in Orthodox churches. But as long as there's been these Orthodox uses, people have like used the technology of the Catholic Church <laughs> for spells and their own folk magic. And there are various things that people do. Some people just burn off the shelf stuff that they purchase as part of some practice, like they might be doing a divination, like a tarot reading, or as I discussed earlier, doing the scrying where you look into a crystal ball. Other people will burn things as, as part of more elaborate rituals or contacting spirits. Incense is very theatrical and has been used certainly in stage magic and things like that because it conveys this mystery, this sense of like being in between. And there are specific ways in which people pray over incense the Catholic Church has actual rituals, you know, there's things that you actually do masses and things and sanctify the incense before you burn it. And there are comparable things that people do in, in magical practices where they may um, have prayers or whatever to sanctify the incense and to give it a purpose, you know, for whatever ritual use they're going to do. Was there sort of shared lore amongst these witches in LA, like where certain scents had certain meaning and they, and they sort of all agreed to that? Or was that something that was very personal depending on the, the practitioner? So that is a really good question. So this stuff really wasn't particularly written down. So a lot of times it was passed down from person to person. There were a few books. There was a person who went by the name Aima, A-I-M-A, and she wrote this whole book about incense and perfumes and what particular purposes they had in the early 70s. And there was a huge publishing surge of paperbacks and stuff where people started talking about like, what are the purposes of these things? Um, but before that, yeah, was mostly word of mouth, or you would go into stores and they would like tell you like, oh, well, this particular thing is good for this. And you would learn it from the person in the shop. Are you a believer? Do you believe that uh, incense and scent um, has power, you know, um, inherently? Um, it, it has power on multiple levels. I mean, I do personally think that, you know, if you focus on any kind of fragrance in your environment, people know they can be abstracted. And in fact, the hypnosis literature was really fascinating. My favorite is medical literature, which cautioned people about letting young women smell heavily fragranced flowers like tuberose because they describe them their head would go back and their eyes would close because you do that, right? And their eyelids would flutter because you're kind of going into an altered state, but they thought it was kind of indecent, really, that these women were in a suggestible state, which was inappropriate for a young woman, um, and that they should smell unscented flowers, which were safer. But yes, yeah, so I just think getting into a fragrance, you do go into a slightly altered state, you become abstracted. People use altered states in their body to propel various things like divination and what we would call magic. It's so fascinating. Are you, um, do you consider yourself a, a, a magic making person? Yeah. I mean, I have different, I don't, giving myself a word is complicated because yeah, I do lots I of different things. Um, but yeah, I have always done that, but I just think that there's just the everyday magic of being able to take yourself into a somewhat non-rational state to solve things you wouldn't normally be able to solve if you just used your rational mind. And that's what magic is about, really. That was James Dotson, a psychiatrist with a fascination for the strange borderlands of fragrance. You can learn all about James at uncannysense.com. Over the past three years, Brooklyn goddess Kay has harnessed her spiritual channel through various forms of divination, including tarot. She created the platform The Goddess Way to create community and to share her love for the metaphysical and, of course, beauty. I started our chat asking her how she saw scent contributing to the process and practice of healing. Here's the Brooklyn goddess Kay. 
when you bring what people see as more concrete into the uh, idea of spirituality and healing, uh, scent is one of our strongest senses. A lot of people who go into comas or they, you know, suffer from dementia, studies have shown that certain scents, you know, light up certain sensors in their brain and they could bring them back to moments or it can help reinstate their memory. So with healing and what I realized even with healing with myself was my nose associated my childhood with this spiritual cologne called Florida water. And um, the reason why, you know, a lot of spirituals like to use it is because it's traditionally made with lavender, rose, orange peel, and then, you know, you get your green herbs. So like rosemary, thyme, and things like that. Those scents have been associated with aromatherapy to create a sense of calm. So that's why a lot of spiritualists, when they're getting ready to do a practice, they'll douse themselves in Florida water or, you know, clean their spiritual space with Florida water because it's already going to calm everything that you're doing. And the more grounded you are, the better you can go about your healing and not allow it to derail you and, you know, be counteractive. So when you're dousing yourself with Florida water, is is it a sort of a psychological thing where when you're, when you put yourself in that space, you smell that thing, you're ready to be more receptive. Is that sort of how it works or? Yeah, that's, that's a perfect explanation. It allows you to be more receptive because also rosemary and lavender and peppermint for those who don't know, those are like scents that make the brain alert um, in a sense. Lavender is known to um, open up the brain and to calm it down, but rosemary is good for alertness and so is peppermint. They both help with blood flow, which allows us to be awake, which allows us to feel vibrant and moving. So, you know, putting that Florida water on, I like to do mine in a spritz bottle, like a spray bottle. I put half Florida water and then I try to put spring water with it. And every time, you know, I wake up in the morning or I come out the shower, I spritz myself with some just to be refreshed and start it for the day. Um, do you see a connection between scent and divination? So you touched on this already a little bit, but maybe mm-hmm. we could talk a bit more about it. You know, for oh, instance, yes. are there scents that are, are more conducive to practices of divination? Well, to start, I will say my divination of practice that I enjoy the most and that, you know, I feel extremely connected to is I read tarot cards. I can also read playing cards. Um, a lot of times with my work, I do shufflemancy, which is, you know, you channel a message through music. I sometimes read pendulums and then a lot of times that I have mediumship skills. So um, that is another form of divination for uh, mediumship and even, you know, tarot. Those are very big on sense because you need to do things that stimulate that third eye to make you open and receptive. So like a, a big, big starter, especially in comedic practices. So ancient Egyptian practices, frankincense is that scent of divination. A lot of times uh, frankincense is applied to, you know, the middle of the forehead between the brows, which is our third eye. It is applied there. And then the comets believe, you know, you apply your third eye, the tip of your nose and the tip of your mouth. And then for me, for extra, oomph, I always apply whatever scents to the back of my neck because scientifically, you know, that's a soft part of us. So spiritually, that is a very soft part for, you know, energies to enter. So that frankincense, you apply it like this and it makes your third eye more open and receptive and it works as a form of protection. People will see that if you start to use frankincense daily, you'll be more open and receptive to intuitive messages. And that scent, frankincense is a musky scent, right? It's an earthy scent that's going to allow you to feel grounded and more confident. Um, Even if you take it back to like the Bible, you know, Jesus is gifted frankincense, bergamot and myrrh. All of those scents are good for grounding open you up to divination. Even mugwort has a scent, but not too much of a scent, but that's also another scent people associate with divination. Like this is a herb that, you know, people would steep and make oils with in order to apply to the body. Even like blue lotus, it has a a soft scent. A lot of people drink it as tea. Even that scent of that tea and drinking that tea allows you to be more open and receptive to any psychic messages or intuitive messages that wish to come through. On your website, you have a lot of intention oils. You have, for instance, one called, oh, you you feel in me, male attraction, goddess intention oil, divine lover, Mm -hmm. soft heart, sacred feminine, sweet baby sugar. Do you find that um, for the intention oils, is it more about the, the energies that you put into crafting the oils themselves or, or is it about the scent or is it both? You know, what, what makes the oil functional? So um, 
a lot of my attention oils, when I first started making them, um, the joke was, especially a lot more so the goddess beauty products. So, you know, like I have shea butters, I have goddess mist, I have goddess baths. A lot of those products, when I first started crafting them, and even some of the oils, um, my friends always used to say like, oh my God, can I eat this? You know, we smell with our nose and then we immediately always go to our mouth, right? We start with our eyes, we go to our nose and then we go to our mouth. Little kids, before they try anything, they look at it, they sniff it, right? And then they eat it. That scent, that strongness, it entices you and it makes you more open and receptive. Like, oh, you feeling me? The male attraction oil. I use apple skins in it. I use real life apple skins to craft the oil because apple is known to help improve male vigor. It is known to make men more confident. And then the color red that is associated with our Western understanding of the chakras, the root chakra is red. And, you know, red is a color of prosperity, right? Vitality. So even um, my newest product, I, the goddess baths, I've been working more on baths because I, I want it stronger scents because scent is everything to me. I am a, for astrology wise, I am ruled by the planet Venus. So all of the luxuries of scent and like the decadence of scent is so important to me. So, uh, you know, we create a prosperity bath. It's called Dripping in Gold. I like to make the names fun. Um, I feel like it, it associates with the brand. You know, my, my pseudo name for my brand is Brooklyn Goddess K. And I just wanted it to be very relatable and very like how, you know, I would talk to my friends. So dripping in gold, I wanted it to be a strong scent. So it's cinnamon. You can smell the cinnamon. Cinnamon is a rich scent. It's great for protection, beauty, love, all of those things. And it spices up your life, right? And you can smell that spice. So now you feel more energized. The key ingredient in this bath is pineapple, the fruit of abundance. But whenever we think of pineapple, we think of the sun, right? We think of tropical weathers. We think of happiness. Our brain is always in childlike state. No matter how old we get, we find something we make associations, and then we believe it to be true. When you apply that two cents in your healing process or in your day-to-day trying to manifest or create what you want, it makes it more true. The whole science of spirituality is believing something to be true. We know that our thoughts manifest into the physical. Um, We know energy cannot be created nor destroyed scientifically. So whatever you put your focus on is what comes to be true. So if you use certain scents daily to evoke a certain energy, it's going to eventually become true for you. Do you have any stories that relate to how your products or for yourself personally have scent or being in that mind space has, has changed your life for the better or worse? Oh, yes. I mean, I've also, so I'll first, I'll start with the worst because a lot of people think that, you know, with spiritual practices that everything goes like according to plan. Um, you know, I had, I love to do like love work. I, like I mentioned Venetian. So I apply love oils daily one so that, you know, people are nicer to you when you apply love oils daily for anyone that needed to know, um, whether you're looking for romantic love or not. Mm-hmm. I have been using one just a little too much. And, you know, it got to the point where like, I couldn't walk down the street without someone trying to talk to me or cat calling me. So you want to be mindful, you know, when using anything, the amount of how much you're going in. A lot of times I create products for my friends for their birthday. I, you know, you sit and talk, they come, I'm a listening ear and whatever they tell me, I create a product for that. So I had created this uh, goddess miss. It's called bosses only. And uh, one of the key ingredients in it is also pineapple, but patchouli, patchouli and cardamom. Those are two scents that, you know, for anyone who is trying to spice up their life in the bedroom, just mixing those two scents together it helps to um, for both lovers to feel much more secure in themselves. So using that spray, you know, I've had now my partners, um, they're a lot more uh, lenient with the, the gifts they give and the time they give. And that's all from the scent. It's not like I'm doing anything. It's not like we changed anything in our relationship. It's just certain scents that I wear evoke certain things. Lavender and pumpkin are good for blood flow. So that, that helps increase passion between people. Um, most people don't know that. So, you know, scents are everything. And uh, I believe in using aromatherapy uh, when you're setting that date night mood or you're trying to get zoned in on work, burn a specific incense, especially something that your brain really likes. So then your brain will associate, you know, that scent with whatever you're trying to remember. I love it. It's intention setting, but it's also a sort of aromatic incantation in a way, isn't it? Like you're, you're just the act of choosing and selecting and burning the incense or anointing yourself with the oil. You're bringing in what you want, hopefully. (laughs) Yes. And you know, and even if you do something quote unquote wrong, right. Cause good or bad, wrong or right is always subjective. Even if you do something wrong, there are ways that you can, you know, rewrite 
and start over again, the best teacher is error. I always tell people like, don't be upset. Like, you know, you try something one time, you realize it doesn't work for you. It might work for someone else, but that's fine. Now, you know, and you have actual proof. So now you can make more educated guests. And, and now you realize, well, this was the only thing I did different this time. So let's try something different this time. And then you know what works for you. So someone might be able to wear that rose perfume. And, you know, rose is an attraction scent. It's a high vibrational flower. They're getting a lot of attention, but you wear rose and, you know, people are talking to you nasty because rose might not be your flower. You might be more of a jasmine or a, a marigold, right? So it is really just about uh, trial and error. And there's so many flowers. There's so many different scents, so many herbs, so many spices, so many combinations you can really find what is your thing that was brooklyn goddess k calling us from brooklyn if you're curious to learn more about her practice please check out her website at the goddess way by bgk.com and do some incantations of your own now from the spiritual realm to the extraterrestrial realm, I am super pleased to welcome Dr. David Delgado Shorter as our next guest. After receiving his PhD in the history of consciousness, Dr. Shorter taught at Wesleyan and the University of Indiana before joining the faculty of the UCLA Department of World Arts and Cultures. David is the director of the Wiki for Indigenous Languages, and he is also the director of the Archive of Healing. In addition to this, Dr. Shorter has done extensive research into the experience of UFO abduction in different cultures. And this is what our conversation focused on. So I, I invited you on uh, because, well, for, you do a lot. Um, but one thing that maybe we could start with was the research that you did relating to sense in the stories of UFO abductions. Well, before I became the director of the Archive of Healing at UCLA, I had had essentially a plan to do a book on the study of the paranormal. And I'd been studying psychics and mediums and interviewing them and, and people who go to them in the LA and Southwest area for years. And that, that was sort of, you might want to say, the sibling to my study of ufology and abductee experiences, people who claim that they've been abducted by aliens or UFOs. Mm -hmm. Now, in LA, when I moved here, I was really happy because I was living in West LA, just a couple miles from probably the most famous abductee, Whitley Strieber, who wrote the book Communion. Back in like 1988 or 86, Communion was a national you know, bookseller best times on the cover of all what used to be called bookstores. And it is a book that I have taught every year or two since I became a professor because it is such an amazingly well-written book. That's, that's on top of the fact that it's an experience that was advertised as nonfiction, which is this man was abducted. And here I am, I'm living in West LA, I'm teaching at UCLA, I just gotten this tenure job at UCLA, and I reached out to him, I started talking to him, and I was really fascinated that out of all the stuff that got spun out of ufology and the study of abductions, not a lot of people have to this day paid attention to what he says about smell. It's really interesting to me because when you think about it, the entire abduction, ufology, paranormal claim often rests on believability and what counts mm. as truth. When you look at that and line that up to the history of smell, you realize that there's something going on that connects it to brain activity and memory, almost unlike any other of the senses, which means that we've really missed an opportunity here to really better understand the relationship between smell and knowledge making, or what we even call what counts as science. I mean, if you would let me, I'd love to read this small little section. Please, I was about to say, so tell me about how he speaks about smell. Okay, so in, about, yeah. in the beginning of his book, he's abducted, and it is it is riveting. Um, I, I would go as far to say as Whitley Strieber in this book, Communion, has written one of the most important literary texts um, made by an American. And it is really hard to grasp what he's dealing with. He has been stolen from his bedroom, and he is now on a ship flying somewhere in what looks like a sort of medical room now. So you can imagine right there, he is out of his mind of sorts. He has no idea how to think about it. He's trying to wrestle with this. And he says, if I had been afraid before, I now became quite simply crazed with terror. I argued with them. This place is filthy, I remember saying. And, and then I, I blurted out, you'll ruin a beautiful mind. I could imagine my family awakening in the morning and finding me a, a vegetable, a great sadness started overtaking me. I do not recall screaming, but event, evidently I was doing so because I remember the next exchange quite clearly. One of them, 
I think it was the one I'd identified earlier as the woman said, what can we do to help you stop screaming? The voice was remarkable. It was definitely aural to say that it, I heard it, but, but I sensed it as well. It was, it was a subtly electronic tone and the accents were flat and startlingly Midwestern. And the reply from myself was unexpected. You could let me smell you. I was embarrassed. That's not a normal request. It bothered me, but it made a great deal of sense as I afterward realized. And the one to my right replied, oh, okay, I can do that. The odor was distinct. It gave me exactly what I needed, an anchor in reality. It remained the most convincing aspect of the whole memory because the odor was completely indistinguishable from a real one. It did not seem in any way a dream experience or a hallucination. I remember it as an actual smell. There was a slight scent of cardboard as if the sleeve of the coverall that was partly pressed against my face was made of some substance like paper and the hand itself had a faint but distinctly organic source or sourness in its odor. It was not a human smell, but it was unmistakably the smell of something alive. There was a subtle overtone that seemed a little like cinnamon. Then he goes off to a different sort of shocking thing that's happening. Yeah, what a fantastic section. Yeah, I, I mean, I was sort of amazed. I've taught this book so many times. I've been in conversation with ufologists and other abductees. And Whitley Struber being one of the premier abductees who wrote about it in such a public way, he's grounding the most sort of exceptional hot moment of his abductee experience. He's grounding it through smell. And it just has never really been looked at before. I mean, people have looked at smell in the study of the paranormal before. There's witch smellers. There's the way that you can develop your clairalience, which means your intuitive aspect of smell. But for this person to ground his experience in smell pointed a lot of arrows to what's going on with smell, in particularly with the temporal lobe. Well, yeah. I mean, because what it sounds to me is like he was just desperately looking to re-embody himself in a pretty bananas situation. And smell really lends itself to that, I guess. Absolutely. I'm sure you hear this all the time, that people will say that smell has a way to bring them back in memory. And we know that is the case because of the way that smell connects to the temporal lobe and temporal lobe is responsible for memory. But what's so fascinating in the abductee claims are that many, many, many around the world abductees don't remember the abduction clearly, say among 20 to 30% of the reportees of those who've been abducted, a sharp device inserted either in the uh, little tear duct of their eye or up their nose, and mm. people feel a shock, which they, you know, has been theorized that that's a screen, that's the introduction of a screen memory. So if you ever take mm. one of those tests, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, you, most people don't even know there are tests. Yeah, what but, are these tests? What so there are tests to determine if you're likely to have been abducted. And it asks all these questions that are actually very, very insider information questions. So that if you, you wouldn't even know why you're answering. Like there's this name, like, you recognize this name and it's a name that has sort of appeared in, in abductions and people, no one knows what it's referring to. There's different parts of the body that it says, have you checked this area of your body or do you have any unmarked or, or unknown, you know, scar right here? Well, wow. one of them is that you have a memory of a deer or an owl that if you sit and think about it incredibly closely, you can't actually place where that actually happened in your life. So that's a, you might want to say, indicative thing that you've had an alien experience and they've put in a screen memory. Well, one of the ways that we've started to come, us who've been thinking about these things about abduction experiences closely is, is that the smell was in fact the key, which works both ways. It locks in the screen memory, but it also unlocks the screen memory. So smell becomes the way that people who are trying to make sense of what is living, what is organic, which is a huge question when you're dealing with an alien, by definition, otherness of the capital O, mm -hmm. such an alien capital A experience that is really unhuman or it is not, it is not terrestrial. Mm. Well, smell evolutionarily of all the things that smell was meant to do for our human mechanisms, it is to determine 
organic material. Can I eat mm. this? And is it like me? So all of a sudden it starts making sense. In the most othering experience of alien abduction, smell becomes incredibly important in a way that if you look back at Whitley Strieber's words, he doesn't even know why he's asking it. He was slightly embarrassed. At that moment, smell was the thing that was going to ground him to know that they were living, mm. which is pretty huge for an uh, alien encounter yeah do other abductees report similar um smell experiences in some way or other smell experiences yeah so much so that cinnamon and cardboard end up being on that questionnaire yeah oh interesting okay do you have a faint memory of smelling cinnamon or cardboard at night in bed for no reason there was this conference that they had at harvard and mit and it was all about close encounters of the of the fourth kind and it was about all these people, psychologists mostly, coming to better understand how they can help their patients who had abduction experiences. And a lot of abductees went to this. And one of the things that was really interesting is the interviewer was talking to these women down, I think, in North Carolina who've been abducted. And one of them says that her becoming aware of abduction as a possibility in her own life was that she had, since she was a little girl, an unreasonable distaste or hatred of the smell of cinnamon. And then she goes to this conference and finds out that cinnamon is one of the key indicators of an, of an abduction experience. And she immediately goes into a psychologist's uh, office when she gets back home. And then it unravels that not only had she been inducted, but her mom been inducted, her daughter's been inducted, and that there's the smell of cinnamon every time the aliens come into the bedroom. Wow. So listen, as an academic, uh, you approach these things with with a degree of academic, you know, um, well, one has to look at the facts, right? And do the research and the literature. So how do you make sense of these experiences? I I ask you uh, from a place of acceptance and engagement. Well, there's the work, which is the research itself. And then there's some larger things that I have not been able to talk about until this year. My father, who Mm -hmm. died last year, worked top secret for the U.S. government. I know for a fact that there's UFOs. I've been raised with it and I've never been able to say anything because he would have lost his health care and he was fighting cancer. In my class, Aliens and Psychics and Ghosts, I start with UFOs and I tell them outright, I'm not going to actually spend weeks on UFOs. You have about 48 hours to get on board with me. UFOs are sort of the baseline. Like we're, we're not, we're so beyond UFOs when we get to the abduction experience. I've done all this for, you know, 25 to 30 years. I could sit here and rattle off all the ways we know there are UFOs. Just keep Mm -hmm. in mind that we're in a U.S. context and the U.S. government has had a different relationship to the information and the freedom of information than other countries. So if you take a more global approach to this, then you are without a doubt able to say that we have non-human made aerial (laughs) devices flying in our airspace that are either controlled remotely or to use a gender term manned. So there, there's step one, that's happened, which then brings the issue of, well, have these beings ever been on on the ground? Well, yes. Then we get into the whole other category of crash sites across the Southwest, across the world. Um, My father's stepmom was the triage nurse that was working in Socorro, New Mexico, when the bodies were brought in from the crash. You're you're referring to the crash, the, the people associate with Roswell, yeah? Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm referring to the one called the Socorro crash, which happened oh. before Roswell. And it's a much more important crash. Okay, I don't even know about the Socorro crash, but I'll do my research on that one. Roswell is the dangling keys trying to get your attention to the real stuff. So let's jump to abduction claims and the smell and the way that the senses tell us about what we know. The way that I introduce it to my classes is that we have to recognize that we live in a society in which women have been on testimony on camera in our governmental centers claiming abuse, sexual harassment, and it falls down to whether we believe a person's testimony is valid. Mm. And so taking a person's testimony at face value is really important. And when I started looking at abduction claims, I was at Indiana University where Thomas Bullard is, who's a, a professor who has essentially collected, categorized, and created a database of all abduction claims everywhere. So if, in fact, we're going to just look at abduction claims itself, then we're looking at not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands around the globe. And we're looking at stories from cultures in historic moments 
in which they did not have the popular cultural stimuli that would give them the content of the narrative to make it so similar to everyone else. So by the time we're looking at most of the claims, which start around, I would say, 1932 to 1938, all the way to 1988, that sort of main window of all the abductions across the globe, you are having stories that duplicate the insides of ships. None of that stuff is in one or two or three popular cultural narratives, movies, films, or stories that would have then circulated around the globe in enough time in enough languages to make sense of the similarity of the testimony. So from a simply social scientific perspective, mm-hmm. I've looked at people's narratives. I'm already on the side that oral tradition is not only more valid than most written documentation, it is sometimes perhaps less prone to political maneuvering, such right. as truncating reports, changing who tells what stories about what victors or winners. There's a huge amount of data that doesn't seem to be falsifiable, and it doesn't bring anyone great life-changing wealth to become an abductee. Mm -hmm. Then you're very parallel to women's and men's claims about sexual abuse and sexual harassment. It almost always causes the loss of wages, popularity, people's trust, friendship, family. You wouldn't have humans doing this to themselves and telling these stories unless the truth and the validity is more important to them than keeping quiet. So when I look back at Whitley Strieber's story, I think here's a man who's been written off as being crazy. And yet his own narrative is telling you that his sensory perception was not faulty. He was literally saying, I can't believe my eyes. Well, what can you do if you can't believe your eyes? Well, let me see if I can believe my nose. Okay, there was so much more that we spoke about that I had to cut for time purposes. I did this with the full confidence that Dr. Shorter will be speaking about this more soon in various podcasts and YouTube casts, including a version of the class he teaches for UCLA called Aliens, Psychics, and Ghosts. Find out more about Dr. Shorter at davidshorter.com. Our final guest is Richard Carradine, who I met in 2016 when we collaborated, along with some other lovely people, on a project called Phantosmia, which mapped aromatic hauntings in Los Angeles. Richard is many things, but salient to our purposes today, he is the founder of the Ghost Hunters of Urban Los Angeles. I started our chat asking him if smell ever played a part in hauntings. Here is what he had to say. Uh, yes. And actually, before talking to you, I was kind of going through my notes, um, and I kind of focused on the Los Angeles area. Right. And I found at least 60 haunted places in, in just L.A. alone that have a, a, a strong, I guess, smell associated with the haunting. Wow. Are there any that spring to mind as being particularly interesting? Well, uh, yeah. Again, flipping through, the majority fall into three categories, which is perfumes, uh, particularly floral perfumes. Uh, then there's smokes, like uh, pipe smoke, cigar smoke, cigarette smoke, but also smoke from a fire or from like gunshots. And then there's also animal smells, like a place that used to be a barn or a stable that was converted into something else. You know, there'll still be those phantom smells of the horse or the manure decades later. But my favorite is, is do you know the, um, the author Zan Gray, the mm-hmm. Western author? Yeah. He had a little house in, on Catalina recreation little home on Catalina Island and he apparently would go out fishing and then bring back the fish and cook it up in his little cottage on a frying pan and they say that the people who inhabited that space every now and then they'll smell the very strong odor of fish frying wow that's, that's not the best odor to, to be confronted with out of nowhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Does it freak them out, do you think? Or are they kind of, they, they just know what it's all about? I mean, at this point, people just kind of, uh, I think, enjoy the fact that Zan Gray is still there in, enjoying the, the space that he enjoyed in life, I guess. And he, he died, I think, in, gosh, in the late 30s, I believe. So that is definitely an old smell. Yeah. An old haunting. Yeah. There's another weird category of like um, rotting flesh smells. There's a restaurant in Pasadena that was an old mortuary that they converted into a restaurant. And they say that every now and then in the rooms where they used to house the bodies, that they will have this phantom odor of 
of yeah of like rotting flesh good lord that would be that sounds like, and then i think i think i, I if i recall because we did a project together many many years ago now but and i remember there was a there was a there was a phantom smell on the trails leading up to the hollywood sign that they attributed to peg entwistle yeah her perfume which i believe is a, a gardenia kind of uh scent yeah that's right and then for those who aren't familiar peg entwistle was a, a young actress who committed suicide by tossing herself off the hollywood sign uh, up, back the in the, up the letter h no less <laughs> and people that walk their dogs up there or go hiking around the trails will smell this very strong, perfumey smell still lingering on the trails. And then I think Rudolf Valentino's horse also haunts, if I recall. His mansion, which unfortunately was torn down uh, actually not too long ago, but adjacent to that mansion was his stables where he kept his horse. And that building was converted into a house many decades ago. And yeah, the property owners still say that they every now and then will have a very strong um, scent of a horse, you know, in their house. I don't know what your you know belief levels are in in sort of ghosts, and so I mean, how do you how do you navigate this yourself, Richard? Um, yeah, it's yeah, because I guess we get into the nature of ghosts here. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I don't. The short answer is I don't know how this works, how ghosts work, but it is fascinating that. There is a sort of experiential aspect to hauntings or a sensory aspect that most people think of ghosts as like seeing something, but there's definitely, like we've discussed, the smell. Um, there's a lot of auditory things, like people will hear footsteps or hear voices or laughter or sounds of a party. Um, there's a lot of touching. People will feel hands on them or feel pushed. Uh, unfortunately, there's no taste. I, I've never heard of a taste ghost story but then i guess uh, smell is a large portion of taste so maybe that kind of covers it but yeah it is such a a sensory thing and my only thought is or the thing i think is interesting is this idea of ghosts um how do i put this uh existing in physical space around us is a fairly new concept it's a 20th century kind of concept. Hmm. Previous to that, the prevailing theories around ghosts in the 1800s and before was that it had to do with your brain. Not to say that they're hallucinations, but just as sound waves are kind of this invisible force that kind of comes towards you and then your, your ears kind of converted into something your brain can hear. The thought hmm. was, or at least the prevailing theories all around ghosts were that they were some sort of invisible force that your brain was interpreting that it wasn't happening out in front of you, but it was just this thing that your brain was kind of receiving and then creating the picture or the sound or the smell for you to experience. Hmm. And how did that change? When did that change? It changed in the 20th century, and I'm not sure why. There's a weird shift where people kind of remove themselves from the experience, and they think it's existing on its own. And my only thought is that maybe ghosts started to infiltrate popular culture and it's it's easier to make a movie about a ghost that haunts a house you know without a person receiving you know some sort of signs um or you know radio dramas and that kind of thing but yeah i, I have no idea why the shift and now we just kind of lost that thought that it's your brain i mean some some people pre 20th century thought it was tied to memories that these memories were just kind of floating in space and your brain would kind of catch them or receive mm -hmm. them or, you know, find them. Mm -hmm. And so like you would have a house that would be filled with memories, let's say. And as you walk through it, your brain would pick up these remnant memories. And so you would smell the smells that occurred in that house, or you would hear the footsteps or the children laughing or see people from another time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, you know, it, it is interesting that, you know, so much of our interpretation of smells and sounds, uh, you know, are tied into memory. Of course. So anyway, that's how they kind of explained it back then. And I kind of actually kind of prefer that thought that it is like, you know, that these things are all around us, but you kind of really need the brain to find it or receive it like a like a radio signal. Yeah, that it actually reminds me of that that movie that David Byrne made called True Stories. Uh, ah, yes. David Byrne, yeah, it's so good. Uh, and there's this one character in the movie that is sort of all about being a, hum a walking radio, sort of the human is receiving messages, you know. Um, <laughs> and as a side thing, I mean, I, I also like it because it kind of cleans up uh, ghost stories. As somebody who studies this stuff and, you know, and collects ghost stories, there are a lot of unusual things that this theory of the brain kind of answers, like, you know, 
obviously like why do ghosts wear clothes right you know, why, why wouldn't ghosts all be naked you know because the clothes don't die they don't pass on to another realm right but it, but if it is a memory then you would picture the whole thing and likewise mm-hmm. there are many stories of of phantom trains and phantom uh, cars, you know, of ghostly airplanes. And again, how would we, like a plane doesn't die. So why is there a ghost of our ghost ship? Why would that exist? Well, I'd never thought of that. You're totally right. Like this idea that we're receiving signals kind of cleans up a lot of the questions surrounding what ghostly phenomenon is. Right. So, you know, perhaps sailors are going through a part of the ocean where a ship went down and there's still that lingering whatever energy there and as they pass through it they see the ghost ship in the mist you know mm-hmm. so yeah again nobody knows of course, <laughs> why yeah. ghosts are or what they are but i i kind of like that thought yeah i like that too so why did you get into ghosts what, what interested you in this field uh <laughs> i had an experience when i was when i was young Mm. um but also i had around me a lot of adults i guess that had stories and you know at the end of the night or something people would start telling their stories and i always found the stories fascinating i'm not a ghost hunter in the traditional sense i don't go out and spend the night in haunted places i don't carry around equipment i don't do those like stakeouts and that kind of thing i'm more fascinated by the more folkloric aspect of ghost stories I collect stories from people. I research stories. And yeah, as a child, I heard many and they just fascinated me. And then as as I got older, anytime I would go into a old building, a restaurant or an old movie theater, I would corner a staff member and ask them, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen? And more often than that, you get like a really great ghost story. And I found that it's kind of this weird hidden history where like, let's say you work at a bar that's haunted. Everybody who works there knows the ghost stories. Right. But you having a drink there at the bar, you don't know the stories. And so it's this like weird thing that's passed down as a new person gets hired. They learn the ghost stories. And it's just this kind of like hidden layer to that bar that is not talked about outside that circle of people. And I just found that fascinating. And also the idea that when these bars close, those stories get lost. Nobody thinks to write down the ghost lore that the bartenders and waitstaff used to tell each other, Hmm. which is also kind of a weird window into the history of that bar, because usually ghosts are tied into historical events and or, you know, uh, regular customers or past owners or whatever. So Mm -hmm. so the ghost stories are also kind of an interesting reflection on the places they haunt. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I I guess I I approach it more from an academic aspect of, of of collecting and finding these stories and, and, and putting them down for posterity. And, and what are you doing with your with this archive? Are you going to publish that one day, do you think? I'm putting out books of little-known oh, yeah. lore. Yeah. yeah, I did a book about the, the ghost stories of Disneyland because my father worked for the company for 30 years, and yeah. I was very aware of the stories going to the park so often and talking to the cast members. And I thought it was fascinating that nobody outside of people who work there knew these stories. I started recording those stories and I put that out in a book. And yeah, slowly I'll be putting them out in books or sharing them online or or, or whatever. But yeah, I, I, ultimately I don't know what the, the end point of this project is. That was Richard Carradine. We had a lot more to talk about and Richard shared a pretty epic ghost story, which he graciously agreed to let us share online. So please check out perfumeontheradio.com for that outtake, because, well, Nelly, it is seriously, seriously scary. And that, dear people, was our show. I want to take an extra moment to thank Darian Zahedi and Maxwell Williams for our Perfume on the Radio auditory identities and always to Lookout FM for hosting this pretty niche radio show. This was episode 13, which we called The Doors of Perception, and I was your host, Saskia Wilson-Brown. You can learn all about this show and others on perfumeontheradio.com. We'll see you next time, and until then, keep it real, keep it spooky, and keep it smelly.